This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with Dan Favale and Andy Bailey. And today we're going to be talking to you about the Indiana Pacers. Now, normally I do a little bit of a recap on what happened last year, but here that's kind of irrelevant because Paul George had a broken leg and their season was completely tumultuous. Nothing good happened. But this year, this is one of the teams that is, uh, is truly dividing our, our, our group of contributors on Hardwood Knox because I love this team. There are a lot of guys on it that I'm, I'm really high on. I know Dan does not at all, and Andy is a little bit more neutral but leaning towards not liking them. So right off the bat, I want to give both of them an opportunity to convince me with just one point that they are not as good as I think they are. Okay, well, I'm going to throw it back on. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. On you, because I like some of the stuff you said about there's a lot of guys on here that you could get excited about, but I want you to tell us what makes you think that next season, with the current talent they have and how it meshes together, that they're going to be an above-average Eastern Conference basketball team. I honestly You just think answered the it. They play in the Eastern it. Conference. <laughs> That's not, that's not a good enough reason for me. Well, What's above the, no, I, average within the I, I think that conference. Yeah, I think that with Paul George back, I don't really expect that much regression from him because he's had such a long time to recover. He's, he got to play at the end of last season, so I don't think awful. there's... Yeah, but I don't think there's going to be as much of a mental hurdle to overcome coming back from such a devastating hurdle. Uh, it's such a devastating injury. And, you know, he looked great before that. So that's one thing. 
And beyond that, I think George Hill is one of the more underrated point guards in the game, and he really got a chance to prove that during this last season when it was more his team. Monte Ellis fits in really nicely because even though he doesn't add shooting to this team, his slashing style of offense is also something that they didn't have, and they have an offensive player who can create his own shots. So that, that moves them up pretty significantly. Miles Turner, there's going to be, there's, there needs to be a lot of growth from him. He's, he's pretty raw, but he flashed some great tools in summer league. And Jordan Hill is capable of playing solid defense on the, on the interior, and he's not going to be tasked with doing as much on offense as he was with the Lakers. So it's, it's a collection of pieces that I think is going to be greater than the sum of the parts. And, I mean, let's not forget that last year it's not like they were terrible. You know, even with all this going on, they won 38 games, which, which meant that they won the same amount of games as the Nets who made the playoffs with the 8 seed. They just lost the tiebreaker. So it's not like they have to improve too substantially. Well, um, it looks like Dan might have something to say about Jordan Hale, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this quick. Um, to answer Adam's original question, one point for why I'm kind of – down on the Pacers, the thing that really carried them, especially last season, I know you said George Hill is underrated, and I agree with that, but that front court of David West and Roy Hibbert has sort of been the anchor for the Pacers, and they were kind of the anchor even when, when Paul George was healthy. Um, they're, they're completely gone, and they're replaced with conceivably Miles Turner and uh, Jordan Hill. Now, Miles Turner I do like a lot, but he is a rookie. So there's, there's still um, adjustment period. There's still a lot of mystery because you never know for sure what a rookie's going to be until you've seen him for a couple seasons. Um, so that's, I, I, from just a watchability standpoint, I really like this team. I think they got a lot more fun with guys like Monte Ellis, like you said. If this Paul George power forward thing is real, I think that's really cool. Um, and I will enjoy watching that. But... Just, you know, on its surface, there seems to be a pretty severe downgrade in the front court. And that's, that's the main reason I'm kind of down on them a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to talk about Jordan, them relying on Jordan Hill for solid defense, that, that's an issue for me. I think what does help them and will almost support Adam's point is that, you know, Ian Mahimi's not actually a big drop-off from Roy Hibbert at this point. They're both pretty good rim protectors. They're going to struggle to get defense from everywhere else. Maybe you'll be fine with wherever George Hill is playing, but Monte Ellis is not a good defender. He still, after all these years, takes way too many chances trying to get steals. You look at a guy like Miles Turner, he should be able to block some shots, but rookies don't normally fare well as rim protectors, even when they are blocking shots. And where's your defense coming from at the power forward position specifically? I hope Paul George plays power forward. That'll make them a lot more fun. But if he's still rehabilitating and working his way back, it's going to take a few months for him to be at a point where he could defend more physical guys at the forward position, even though that position is sort of changing. And is he even physical enough to do that now? I mean, let's even say he is completely fine. Does he have that size and strength to body up against more traditional fours? Or even a guy like Kevin Love who can play outside and a little bit more physical on the interior? I think their offense could be a lot better than it has been, but I'll be shocked if their defense doesn't regress incredibly. And that's one of the main reasons why I'm down on this team. And, and the last reason I'll say before letting Adam take it is Monte Ellis has yet to prove that he can really work alongside any kind of guard. I think he found the most success with Devin Harris in Dallas or something, but he's already failed with Jennings, Stephen Curry, Ray John Rondo. I hope things are better with George Hill because he can play off the ball a little bit more. 
but I'm not incredibly hopeful because something always seems to go wrong on the offensive end with Monta in terms of who he's playing with because he's that combo guard, that Jamal Crawford-esque guy who's asked to be this number one option in the starting lineup. And I don't know if that works in today's NBA. I think it's important to note that I'm not trying to say they're a contender. I mean, this is a deeply flawed team that benefits significantly from playing in the East. I just like them a lot more than I know you do because I view them as almost a playoff lock. Uh, to your point about defense in the front court, though, I think we need to mention Lavoy Allen because he was never that great before he got to Indiana. But the last couple seasons, after he was traded there in 2013-14 and in 2014-15, he put up really strong defensive numbers and had a big impact on that end. His defensive box plus minus on basketball reference was really solid both years. And this, this last season, among power forwards, his DRPM on ESPN was actually 23rd at his position. So this is a guy that, that can play more minutes than he's been given and is going to provide that little boost that they, do, that they do admittedly need in the front court. So even if Turner does struggle because he is raw and he is a rookie, I think that, he, that Allen is capable of playing enough minutes to kind of mitigate that negative impact. So we've talked a lot about the front court, and um, I'm just kind of wondering, what do you guys, what would be the lineup that you would, rely most on in Indiana. I think for me, like I said, I like uh, Paul George in the front court. Um, I think there is a lot of validity to what Dan was saying about uh, having to take a pounding against power forwards and all that. But there are a lot of these, you know, six, seven, six, eight power forwards. Traditionally, that's, I mean, it's not even really small ball. I think we've talked about this in other episodes. It's just six, seven, six, eight guys with more skills. Um, so I like Paul George at power forward. One guy that I think is, um, I kind of like maybe just because he played for Utah for a while, but I like C.J. Miles. Um, I like the backcourt of George Hill and Monte Ellis. And then I think you just throw Miles Turner to the Wolves as a rookie and have him play center. Um, and I think you can play really fast with that lineup. I think you have a decent amount of shooting with that lineup with George Hill, Paul George, and C.J. Miles. And even Miles Turner can stretch it out a little bit. Um, I think you can do some really fun things offensively. And then on defense, I think you just got to, <laughs> uh, you, you do have some, yeah, you can pray a little bit, but you do have some guys like George Hale and Paul George who are proven to be solid defenders. Assuming George comes back healthy, you do have potential with miles Turner. Um, so, I mean, if it's me, I throw out the small ball and I just have fun with it. Yeah, I think that definitely works. Um, I would use that a lot. I would also leave George at the three and then play Lavoie Allen and Miles Turner together with Jordan Hill coming off the bench, just because I do like the defense that Allen brings to the table. Uh, Dan, I want to hear your lineup, but I do have a question that I want to ask after that, so just keep that in mind. Um, I probably wouldn't change anything about Bales' lineup. Maybe if they're looking for more proven spot-up shooting because you're losing a lot of it in Monta Ellis, you go with Chase Budinger at the three. He's a little bit better of a shooter than C.J. Miles, but I'm all for starting Miles Turner. And then if we're talking about guys coming off the bench, you know, you have Rodney Stuckey still, instant offense, but I really like Ian Mahimi's rim protection, and I'm not taking away minutes from him for George Hill or even Lavoy Allen. He's my backup five, and he's my starting five if you don't want to start uh, Miles Turner, which I suspect the Pacers might not want to. But to that point, I want them to because I think this needs to be sort of a development year for them. I know they have a bunch of veterans, and maybe you can scrap and claw and get that eighth and final playoff spot, I don't think they, they will. And that's where Adam and I probably differ the most. I don't think this team's going to make the playoffs at all. He has them as a lock. I want to see them grow a guy like Miles Turner who could be 
one of those guys who shoots and blocks shots. That Serge Ibaka, Anthony Davis type player doesn't have their ceilings, so before everyone goes off. But I want to see them invest in that, invest in this small ball movement that Larry Bird is really seems to be really high on, and just go from there. If it results in a playoff berth, great. If it doesn't, that's just the cost of doing business for them at this point. So we we spent a lot of time on some of these team previews talking about coaches, and we haven't mentioned Frank Vogel at all here, and I'm wondering if he's one of the biggest reasons that we we sort of differ in our opinions of this team, because he's he's had such a good defensive philosophy for a long time. We've seen coaches like Steve Clifford and Tom Thibodeau take lesser defensive pieces and turn them into above average ones by virtue of fitting them into their system and being able to make subtle tweaks that maximize their talent. Do you think Vogel can do that here, or is this just doomed to be a bad defensive squad in spite of his coaching there? I would actually say their main hope is is his scheme. I actually do like it because they were able to be a good defensive team almost regardless of who they had out on the floor last year. They were at least pretty average, so that bodes well for him. He hasn't really shown he can coach that small ball team, though, and the offensive sets are really uninventive. And is that a matter of personnel? We won't really know until the season starts. So I'm not high or low on him. I know he can coach defense into this team, and maybe he'll be able to extract value out of a rookie like Miles Turner, out of a porous defender like Monte Ellis. But I worry about what's going to become of this team on the offensive end because they haven't been a good offensive team in years. And Vogel hasn't proved that he can really help these guys grow into great offensive talents all around. I mean, when they had Paul George and Lance Stevenson, they were still below average offensive team. And that's when both of those players were playing really well. My other issue is, and I don't want to throw this on Frank Vogel alone, but what is the leadership aspect of this team? You know, we talk about they lost their leader in David West, and that's true. But things went to hell over the last two years there, it seemed, behind the scenes with him there. So does Vogel have enough influence to get these guys to buy in or to keep control of the locker room? Is Paul George ready to sort of corral the egos here? Because Monte Ellis has had issues in the past. You know, you talk about what happened in Golden State or Milwaukee, and even Dallas was sick of him by the time he was done there. So, so those egos clashing and the lack of that proven leader, that just bothers me. And I know you can't really measure that, and it's an off-the-court thing, but it still bugs me. Was that really an issue last year so much as them just having so many injuries throughout the season? I mean, they started out the season without Hill, without West, without George. So, I mean, that was, that was a tough hole to climb out of from the get-go. But I think the, the, biggest, the biggest problem two years ago was that they had unreasonable expectations. You know, they stormed out to get that number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They viewed themselves as title contenders. And when it all started to fall apart, they had a lot of young guys that were in this position for the first time. And I think a lot of what happened was a little bit overblown just by the media grabbing a hold of the story and just running with it. And it didn't seem to be as much of an issue for me last year. We didn't really hear that many negative stories coming out of Indiana. Well, because they had no expectations last year. They were almost that Cinderella story. But you had Roy Hibbert, who was just devolving in front of our eyes. There's clearly a disconnect between players and the front office. I know we want to talk about David West wanted to go chase a ring. Dude gave up like $12 million to go chase a ring. I'm not sure if that says a great deal about the Pacers organization. They said a bunch of stuff about Roy Hibbert before he was even gone that we sort of laughed off. And my problem with them the year before, those expectations weren't necessarily unreasonable, but any time they faced some sort of adversity where Roy Hibbert struggled or when they signed Andrew Bynum, they just seemed to sort of fold. And that's where you need Paul George to take the leap as a leader. I'm not saying he can't, 
But that's just a question. So uh, the things that have happened there over the last two years, there just doesn't seem to be the best line of communication or the relationship among players or between the players in the front office necessarily. It at least isn't established yet, and, and that's going to worry me. I think um, jumping into this debate about the organization, I think there's two sides to the continuity coin. And, and analysts in the NBA a lot of times talk about continuity and how it's really good for a team if they if you can keep everybody together and they can gain chemistry and kind of learn how each other play. Um, at the same time, some teams just have a shelf life, and if you start losing and personalities, um, you know, personality clashes will come to the surface when you start losing. Uh, that could happen between players in front office. It can happen between players, and sometimes you just have to scrap it and and try a new direction and I think that's what the Pacers are doing there was so much talk this summer about wanting to play faster wanting to have more of an emphasis on offense um, and I don't know if it's I don't know if the major turnover and sort of the turmoil of the last couple seasons is as much an indictment on the front office as it is just an indication that it was time to change direction and if it's that then kudos to them for recognizing it and and taking that step in a different direction. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I'm going to be very diplomatic here and agree with both of you because I do think that they were trying to have a, a substantial shift in the mentality of the team. But at the same time, they didn't handle situations well this summer. You know, the, the Roy Hibbert thing was a disaster. You, you shouldn't publicly throw your, your, one of your best players under the bus, or maybe not best, but biggest name players under the bus while he's still under contract with the potential to return. So I, I don't like that at all, but I do think that it's almost like a convenient scapegoat here because they did need to make changes. Yeah, I'm just not a fan of the whole scapegoat thing. And even this summer also with the – it doesn't seem Larry Bird and Paul George were necessarily on the same page about him playing the four. So, so that's just another yeah, thing to consider. True. This team also hasn't shown that it can necessarily change directions. And I guess this will just lead into the question I want to ask. What needs to happen for them next season? And I guess we, we're all going to have different views on that, but we talk about this change in direction. I want to see them commit to that, even if it's at the expense of wins. I want to see Miles Turner get a lot of playing time. I want to see them play faster. I want to see them experiment with fall ball, small ball, and I want to see their offense improve. Like I don't want to see it in the bottom 10 or the doldrums in the NBA anymore. That's what I'm looking for for them. I don't think it should be a playoff year. It should be a transition year, but they need to show that they're committed to this transition that they've really doubled down on this offseason. They've talked about playing smaller a lot. So I just want to see them commit and devote themselves wholly, fully to changing course like it seems like they want to. You guys might hate this comparison, but I kind of view them like where we had the Celtics last summer. I was thinking you know, the like same thing. They're right in the middle of a rebuild to the point where they're not going to finish at the bottom of the conference and they're not a contender. So they just got to play their game and figure out what exactly they have and and run experiments and see if the small ball works and see exactly what they have in Turner and how much George Hill can, can excel running the team even when Paul George is back. So uh, I think that they're talented enough to overcome the lack of desire to really win every game possible, uh, but th it's not like they're going to try and, and, and do anything but finish in the middle of the conference. I was just thinking too, the nice thing, and I, I thought about the Celtics too, Adam, as Dan was talking um, the cool thing or the nice thing about being an Eastern Conference team is you can commit to a transition or a rebuild and still be right in the middle of the conference. 
um, still have an opportunity to get your young guys some playoff minutes, like like the Celtics did last season. Um, that eighth seed is going to be up for grabs for a team between 35 and 40 wins. And I I made a prediction a few weeks ago that the Pacers would not make the playoffs, but I would not be. I mean, they're going to be in that mix, I'm sure, um, of four or five teams that are in that range and have a shot to get there. So they can do what Dan is saying and commit to small ball, commit to, to this um, sort of transitional year and still <laughs> make the playoffs or at least compete for the playoffs. That's just being in the Eastern Conference. Uh, just the thing there for me, and I, I guess that's why it's tough to disagree a lot on any one Eastern Conference team because the difference once you get past the Cavaliers and a couple other teams isn't that stark. Yeah. So yes, the, it wouldn't shock me if the Pacers made the playoffs. It also wouldn't shock me if about seven to ten other teams that aren't supposed to be in the playoffs made the playoffs. I wouldn't be shocked if the Knicks made the playoff in this conference. Like I'd be a little bit more surprised perhaps in the Pacers, but you can put them in that cluster that's going on with the Eastern Conference, where everyone's going to be battling for those playoffs. So Adam's shaking his head. I don't think take the Knicks, the Knicks, Knicks the glasses off. Take them no. off. No, if I if this is me putting what the Knicks makes glasses that on, team that's better fine. than this one? Did I say they were better than this one? Oh, okay, what makes that team be in the same class as this one? Have you looked at the middle pack of the Eastern Conference? Like, are you honestly going to tell me? But if we want to say that they're in the middle middle pack, then I would put the Pacers on the top of that pack and the Knicks still at the bottom of it. So we're going to rank the pack that's pretty much unrankable? <laughs> Don't we have Look, to? If you want me to say that the, I'm saying the Pacers, I'll say it here, have a better, way better chance of making the playoffs than the Knicks, but I think that that whole stereotype goes as far down as the Knicks to where you could say, oh, I wouldn't be surprised if they made the playoffs. I don't think the Pacers are going to make the playoffs, which to me is a pretty substantial thing to say when so many teams have a chance at making the playoffs. And it's out of hope almost that they'll commit to this direction, but I do almost think that we're underestimating what's going to happen with Paul George. What is he going to come in and be able to do as he's trying to play the four, as he's still working his way back from that broken leg? You know, it's great he played last year but he played six games he didn't even play 100 minutes last season or it was wasn't much over 100 minutes it's going to take some time to work through the rust and I think they're going to lose a lot of ground in the in the beginning of the regular season to where they might not pick up until midway through and they're not going to be completely out of it because again Eastern Conference but there's so many teams that should be in that race that I don't think they can be the one that's going to finally grab the seventh or the eighth spot not next season I just don't see it happening I definitely think that is the biggest question, um, what happens with Paul George. And I, a lot of times I think, and I think maybe it's just natural optimism of fans, they just kind of assume when a player comes back from a devastating injury that he's going to be the same. It's, I think the same thing is going on with Kevin Durant. Um, there's no guarantee that they're going to be the same as they were before. You hope that they are. And I think in Paul George's case, um, there are good signs. It was a it was a clean break in the middle of his leg. It wasn't a knee or some other joint in his foot or something like that. So he has that working for him. But it was a devastating injury, and those are hard to come back from. And it's hard to get – this is the highest level of basketball in the world, and it's hard to get back to that um, level of athleticism and explosiveness when you're coming off that devastating of an injury. So I think that's that's definitely a big question mark. I don't think you can just plug him in and say he's the same guy he was two years ago. Um, but if he is, then I think we're a lot we're looking a lot more um, a lot closer to what Adam thinks is their projection. If he's not, then it's a lot closer to what Dan thinks. I think that's really what it comes down to. 
See, for me, I just don't think that we can we can short sell what an impact just getting on the court for 91 minutes can do. You know, because he did prove to himself that he can play an NBA basketball game regardless of how he played because he didn't play particularly well. Didn't just he get proving, hurt, though? But it was a completely different thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Like an ankle sprain? I mean, yeah, just, but, just ahead, proving that the still. leg injury isn't going to hold him back mentally and then having an entire offseason to work his way back to his previous form. Yeah, he's not going to come out and be a top 10 player like he arguably was before he got hurt. But he can get there midway through the year, maybe even earlier, maybe later. But just just being on the floor is a big deal for me that early on in his rehab. I, I, again, I won't say it's not a big deal. I just 91 minutes to me just isn't enough to for me to believe that he's gotten over that mental barrier. And if it is, I just don't know if his body's going to catch up with him. He hasn't played at full NBA speed in over a year, if we want to go there. And I don't want to call Paul George overrated, but like he wasn't done developing when he went down, sort of. I mean, this is a guy who was barely shooting over 42% you know, in his best season of his career in 2013-2014. So he was a great player, and he was going to turn into a great player, but he's so young, and maybe that helps him physically, but he wasn't even... He wasn't even there yet, and now you're looking at him to be the guy. You don't have David West to fall back on. You don't have a prime Roy Hibbert to fall back on. Monta Ellis is your number two. Like That's a big issue to me, especially when we don't know what he was necessarily going to become when he was healthy, and now we're throwing a broken leg, albeit a cleanly broken leg, into this mix. I've never really had to come back from like that sort of ridiculous injury while playing a sport at a high level. I think Andy's probably the one of us who can talk most about that but to me I kind of view it as like diminishing returns almost when you when you start playing minutes like getting from 0 to 10 is a big deal getting from 10 to 50 is a big deal but once you start getting up to 90 and 100 like what you add on isn't necessarily as significant because you're already on the court and you've overcome that first mental hurdle yeah I think there's value to what you're saying I, and I think the biggest hurdle like you said is probably 0 to 5 um just getting through that first experience. I, I tore my ACL in college. Um, so I've, I've come back from a major injury. I didn't play at, at Paul George's level, obviously. Um, but there is Are a you mental... sure? <laughs> well, I'm, I'll have to play him one-on-one to know for sure. But even then, I'm getting post-injury Paul George. Anyway. Paul, if you're listening to this, that's a challenge. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> Just for the publicity for Hardwood Knox, let's do it. Um, <laughs> But I, I do agree with Adam in that sense, that I think probably the biggest hurdle is just that first time back on the court. Um, and I, everybody is different mentally. Um, there will be some players who have sort of a nagging suspicion in the back of their mind for the rest of their career that they're going to get hurt. Um, and it doesn't have to be like re-injuring the same thing. It's, a lot of players will overcompensate um, for a bum knee and they'll hurt a right ankle, like a bum left knee and they'll hurt their right ankle or something. Um, so the, sorry, (laughs) I thought that was a real sneeze at first, but that's true. And and that's something that you have to worry about is, um, as your body starts to break down, it's, it's scary. especially if you're playing at that level, they're very susceptible to wear and tear. Um, so I don't, (laughs) I Who knows what I'm even responding to at this point, but I do agree with what Adam said about that being the biggest hurdle. At the same time, he's not necessarily out of the woods yet. No, and we're almost underselling the fact that he's not coming back 
to the same style of play. He's never really had to play fast-paced basketball. He hasn't spent too much of his career minutes at the four. I think less than 1% of his career minutes have come at the four. That's what basketball reference says. It's so much is different, and he's, again, he was still developing, and now you're throwing this injury into the mix. It's just, it doesn't add up to me to where he's going to come back and be good enough right away to spearhead a playoff run. And that's what they're going to need him to do. How many minutes do you play him next season? Honestly, from the jump, he averaged 15 a game last year. Do you throw him out there and say, here, play 30 a night? He's only done that twice in his career. He's only eclipsed 30 to begin with. So just finding that balance to me is going to be tough. And then there's the mental aspect, which let's assume he gets over it. But can he hold up in this system? Is he going to be the same Paul George? What is he going to turn into? So many questions. I actually like this system a lot more for him than the old one because there are more shooters around him, especially if Turner can connect and space the court right away because for the first time in a long time, this isn't a Pacers team where you can just collapse on the interior and prevent drives. He's actually going to be working against a defense that's spaced out because he's such a good slasher. He loves creating mismatches in the post, and he's actually going to have an opportunity to do that. So yeah, you might have to work him into work him into a bigger role, start him out at 20 to 25 minutes and, and gradually bump it up throughout the season. But in terms of the personnel around him on offense, I think this is arguably the best group that he's had for his skill set. I was, I was actually kind of thinking the same thing. In the, the glory days of, this, um, of the Paul George era, he always seemed like the one guy that was kind of out of place. Like he's the guy that could have played faster, could have played more of like the inside-out ball that other teams – um, or the outside-in ball that other teams play. Um, so I think that, just like Adam says, his skill set might fit this new faster play even better, assuming he comes back healthy, of course. I guess that's just my thing, is wouldn't it almost be, again, maybe uh, Andy could attest to this better, wouldn't it have been easier for him to maybe work his way back in a slower pace system where he doesn't have to run or slash as much? It just seems like that ex- that extra burn, that, that extra burden, that, that extra energy expended might not be good for him from the jump. But you have to find a way to incorporate him into it from the jump. And if you do, you're going to have to bring him along a little bit slower than you would have if you were a more half-court-oriented team. I fully agree that the old Paul George, the one that was healthy in 2013-2014, would have been perfect what the Pacers are trying to do now. I'm wondering if Paul George next season, not even the future, I think he should be fine in the future, but the Paul George of next season, given how much time he's missed, the injury he's coming back from, is he going to be a good fit for what they're trying to do immediately? No, I mean, it's probably not ideal. You don't, you don't want the guy coming off an injury to have to play super up-tempo basketball, but at the same time, like you can't really baby him along too much. I mean, you limit his minutes, but if he's going to play, he's going to play. You're asking like a hyper competitive athlete to like sit back and not play because it's up tempo basketball. Like it's basketball. He's gonna play. So it's it's not ideal, but I don't think it's it's problematic. I, I don't think it's a matter of asking him not to play. It's just can he function at a high level on his way back in this new system right away? I yes. think if we're talking a year from now, I think he'll be a great fit for the system. I don't think he's going to perform as well, assuming the Pacers are committed to playing smaller and running more. I don't think that's the way for him to work his way back from this injury. I agree with, I agree with Adam. I don't think it's the best way, um, but you you, you got to throw him in there, um, and and 
depending on what happens, that's kind of how the Pacer season is going to go. That's what I keep coming back to. Um, if he if he looks close to the old version of himself, a playoff run wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, if he looks like the version of himself that played 91 minutes last season, um, they're going to be in trouble. And and I think that's just that's sort of the crux of their season for me. I guess here would even be a good question. If Paul George is Paul George, again, I'm not ruling it out either, would it shock you if the Pacers didn't make the playoffs? Yes, it would. Yes, actually, that probably would surprise me a little bit. Still wouldn't shock me, so I guess that's where we differ. So I guess let's get down to brass tacks. We'll throw it to Adam first, resident Pacers homer here. Um, how do you think this team is going to do in the end next season after factoring in everything? How, how many wins do you think they're going to grab? First, let me just say it's really weird to be called a Pacers homer because that's like one of the teams that Hawks fans generally didn't like a couple years ago. And so I got accused of being a Pacers hater a lot. But that aside, I think they finished right around 500, which is going to be enough to, to, get, uh, to get the eight seed in the East. I'm not sure who that's not going to knock out, and I'm not really going to make a prediction there. But I do think, I do think they're too talented. To, to miss it. And no, not Brooklyn, because I think there are nine teams that are really strong playoff contenders in the East. <laughs> and they're not one of them. I think that eighth spot is going to come down to the Pacers, the Bucks, and the Celtics. And those are the two I was thinking. Um, what about the Cavs? Yeah, they'll be there. Um, Maybe. Yeah. I would probably say um, a little below 500. Uh, probably like 39, which is barely below 500. Um, but I, just like Adam, I think there's going to be a scrum for the eighth seed. I think those three teams I just named will definitely be there. I think the Pistons might be there. Um, a couple other teams might be there, uh, but they'll they'll be in the hunt. I won't be I won't be shocked either way if they make it or not. I'm going to take a, a little bit stronger of a stand and say that I will be genuinely surprised. I'll even admit I'm wrong, but I'll be genuinely surprised if they clear 38 wins that they won last season. I think that's a reasonable benchmark to say, hey, let's aim to match that. I don't think their ceiling's higher than that because I just remain unconvinced that this team is better now than it was last year after the pieces they've lost after Factory and George's return. I think 38's the ceiling. I lean more towards them winding up with 34, 35 wins and sort of eventually falling out of that scrum in the East, even if it happens in April. I just don't, I just don't think they are able to crack the postseason bubble. But now that I'm done bashing the Pacers, it smells like it's time for... Bacon! Bacon! Where's the bacon? I smell bacon! 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 Gotta be bacon! Only one thing smells like bacon! That's bacon! That's right. It is Burns My Bacon again, and we are going to be handing the talking stick over to Adam. What's really grinding my gears and burning the bacon today is the overall ubiquity of the NFL. It's ridiculous how overexposed this league is when nothing's happening. And, you know, we're, we're recording this podcast right before the season opener with the Patriots and the Steelers. And, you know, I'm excited to watch it, but more because... I almost feel obligated to as a sports fan and less because I'm like, yeah, football's back. Hell yeah. You know, like after what, eight months of, of deflate gate and the resurrection of Spygate and all the arrest scandals and the nonstop discussion, the four months of, of hype before the NFL draft comes around, it kind of ruins it. 
You know, like it's overexposed. It gets talked about way too much to the point that it becomes tiresome. This isn't a sport that should dominate the news cycle every day of the calendar. During the offseason, stuff doesn't happen. You know, in the NBA, we have plenty of offseason events. We have teams competing abroad, but football is an American sport. You know, like it, it, there, there is a Canadian league, sure, um, but it, it's not there, – there isn't stuff that needs to be happening every day, and we manufacture storylines so that we can talk about it every day, and it, it, it just spoils the actual experience. Amen, brother. I, I, mo- I mostly agree, but I'm pretty excited for football to be back. Oh, well, you're going to get excommunicated from the podcast. <laughs> and I vote one more gate scan. I vote somebody start Goodell gate because he's the one thing about the NBA that burns my back. Could we stop with the gates? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that, but Goodell has to get at least one gate, right? Goodell Gotsy. <laughs> I'm fine with that. We need okay, just to get more creative. That's another burning my bacon. Just we need to get more creative naming scandals. Yeah, everything yeah, like, is put a game. into it. We don't need to like tweet it out like 30 <laughs> seconds after it happens. Like, let's put some thought into it. Especially yeah. if we're going to be talking about them 24 seven because it's the NFL. And also, it seems the NFL likes to circle back to things they already talked about, like Spygate. So let's come up with something that we can be happy about when we're talking about it again. You know, ten, five, <laughs> seven years after it happens. Then we'd all be very confused. By the creativity? No, if you suddenly change the name of Spygate, what? I mean, who cares? <laughs> I'm just saying for the future. I'm not saying change Spygate. Oh, okay, the, I got gotcha. you. All I'm saying is I'm on Adam's soap, soapbox right with him. I'm like one foot on, one foot off. <laughs> but that is the end of this episode. So I mean, we, could, <laughs> we could hash out uh, NFL stuff, I'm sure, for another hour. Um, if you want to talk to us about the NFL or about what this episode was about, the Indiana Pacers, uh, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Andrew D. Bailey. Adam is at Frommel09, F-R-O-M-A-L. Dan is at Dan Favale, F-A-V-A-L-E. And all three of us are at Hardwood Knox. Uh, if you subscribe to us on uh, iTunes, go ahead and give us a rating there. You can also find us on Stitcher. And uh, as always... Shout out to Bino Udri. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile.
Phone offer requires port of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. For the ones standing guard. For the eagle-eyed. For the knights in shining armor. And for all those who support them. We are Granger, your experienced safety partner. Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. Committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click slash safety or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.